right now on Matter of Fact. Millions of women remember when Roe versus Wade was not the law of the land. I never want any woman to, first of all, have to have an illegal abortion and feel the shame, because I did. I felt shame and I felt guilt. How a case now before the Supreme Court could rewrite history. Plus, the 1918 flu was a pandemic deadlier than war. It was an extraordinary outburst of death. Why it was called the nation's deadliest pandemic until now. Then, she's taken the stage at comedy clubs since she was 17. My background is pretty dope. I am Puerto Rican from the South Bronx. Meet the barrier-breaking comedian with some serious opinions about achieving the American dream. It's like being at the DMV. You're just on the line waiting until your turn comes up, and it just never comes up. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. This Monday, the Supreme Court will go back in session. In the spotlight, a Mississippi case barring abortions after 15 weeks. It's a case legal experts say could provide a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. In 1973, the court's decision on Roe v. Wade legalized abortion nationwide prior to the viability of the fetus, usually at about 24 weeks. We spoke to two women, Nancy Miller and Sue Pearlgut, who came of age before that decision. We met them after they co-authored a letter to the editor that ran in the New York Times. I drove myself to the Newark, New Jersey train station. I couldn't bring anybody with me. I had to wear a carnation in my lapel, which is why how they would recognize me. Or we go into an irregular apartment in a high-rise building. And they take me first and they give me less drugs. I wake up hearing screaming and I realize it's me. I'm screaming because I'm, I'm feeling the pain. And the doctor says, my neighbors, and slaps me. And I'm back out. And next thing I know, wake up, and <clears throat> the abortion's over. I didn't have any complications afterwards. I was really, really lucky. I had just moved to Boston after graduating from college and got pregnant and was absolutely devastated. I couldn't make myself think about having an abortion. You know, I'd already sinned once, right? I carried it to term and surrendered my baby for adoption. Boy, the shame, the stigma was still there in 1969. It took me five years to get to my under the covers howling grief about having given her away. We all deserved choice, and we didn't have it. I never want any woman to have to have an illegal abortion and feel the shame, because I did. I felt shame and I felt guilt. We didn't have access to birth control unless you were married. So while we do talk to young women at colleges, they get it, they understand. They're in a world right now where it's very scary for them. I absolutely think it's possible to be pro-life and pro-choice at the same time. If abortion were seen as just this medical procedure that anybody could have, I don't think it would be fraught. It's just a choice, that's it. 
For decades, the Supreme Court has upheld Roe v. Wade and the right to abortion prior to the viability of the fetus. Well, now the court appears to be re-examining that right. Here to walk us through the legal issues is Amy Howe, a legal expert who covers the Supreme Court and is the co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Amy Howe of SCOTUS Blog, thank you for joining me. Nice to see you again. So walk me through the cases that are before the court right now. So the Supreme Court, when it returns to the bench, has a number of high-profile cases coming up. It has the potential to be a really epic term. Uh, one of the big ones that everyone's watching, of course, is a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this is a challenge to a Mississippi law that bans virtually all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. The prior case involves something called a shadow docket. Can you explain what that is? Sure. The shadow docket refers to essentially everything that comes to the Supreme Court outside of its normal process. The Supreme Court goes through that in about 70 cases every year. The shadow docket is everything else that happens at the Supreme Court. Which means no hearings, right? That means no uh, arguments. That means uh, they don't write opinions. The shadow docket, it can be are these emergency requests. For example, somebody coming, as someone did just this week, a Texas inmate who came to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to block his execution. Um, the Supreme Court last night issued a very short order that said, no, we are not going to stay your execution. And Texas carried out the execution. I mentioned that a lot of these cases are, are have been and are focused on the, the viability of the fetus. So can you explain to our viewers how this most recent case that will come before the court could challenge, could effectively get rid of Roe versus Wade? The Mississippi law says that uh, bans virtually all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. So that's you know, several weeks before the fetus becomes viable. And so Mississippi, the Mississippi law under Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional because it, it bans abortions before the fetus becomes viable. They could, in a way, end up creating a system where every state makes the decision, which then would de facto undermine Roe v. Wade, even if technically they don't overturn Roe v. Wade. Is that fair to say? Because there are two different things. I mean, frequently people who oppose abortion say, and, and they're right, that if the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, it's not that abortions won't be available anywhere in the United States. It, the issue returns to the states, and each state can decide whether or not they they want to make abortions available. And then the second the second point that I think you're making accurately is that there are lines that the Supreme Court could try to draw and that there are some people who follow the court closely think that that's, that is an option that the Supreme Court may well decide to take to avoid sort of the, the tumult that would happen if next June, shortly before the midterm elections, the Supreme Court announces that it has overruled Roe versus Wade. Amy, thank you. Always nice to talk to you. Really appreciate the update. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Next on Matter of Fact, COVID-19 reaches a cruel milestone. How many hundred thousands do you need to alarm you? The doctor who coined the term flattening the curve weighs in on what's gone wrong and what's next. And coming up, She's a voice for Latinos in America. The American dream to a lot of Latinos is like the worm on the hook that gets you here to America. We give comedian Gina Brion the mic, and she takes it. And later, 
a look back at the leaders who changed the lives of those who helped feed America. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. It's not a record that anybody wanted to break. The coronavirus pandemic is now the deadliest disease outbreak in our nation's history. The COVID-19 death toll in the U.S. is closing in on 700,000, surpassing 675,000 deaths from the 1918 flu. In May of 2020, we aired a story about the history of the 1918 pandemic. We were looking for lessons to guide us through these times. Few of us imagined this pandemic would take a toll so great that history books would need to be rewritten. Here's an excerpt from that story by our special contributor, Joey Chen. The year was 1918. The world was at war. The United States had stayed out of that fight for three years, but in April 1917 decided to declare war on Germany. We had almost no army at the time, very small navy, and so everything had to be started from scratch. The buildup took about a year, and America's young soldiers were finally ready at the very moment, spring of 1918, when another enemy arrived the flu. This flu struck suddenly. It struck uh, without warning, and it was like nothing that anyone had ever seen before. It was killing healthy young farm boys at a remarkable rate. They were turning blue, literally dying within hours. But America was focused on getting the doughboys to Europe with predictable consequences. Those troop transports were disease carriers. They were like hotbeds of infection, and someone has called them floating coffins. The flu had already gone global, but neutral Spain got the blame. The first real published report in Europe of an epidemic comes out of Madrid, and almost instantly it becomes known very widely as the Spanish flu. It certainly did not start there. The flu death slowed by summer, but then a kind of patriotic fever reignited the pandemic. Philadelphia leaders planned a huge Liberty Loan parade. Despite doctors urging a halt, the health commissioner let the march go on. 200,000 people crowded the streets of Philadelphia. Within two days of that parade, every hospital bed in Philadelphia was filled. It was an extraordinary outburst of death and outbreak of death. Other cities were better at social distancing, at least for a time. But in just one year, the flu claimed some 675,000 American lives and somewhere between 50 and 100 million worldwide. We are still uncovering evidence of how far and uh, terrible the, the plague in 1918 was. Davis is quick to say the 1918 flu isn't exactly like COVID-19. Still, he sees warning signs. This did not go away when flu season was over in the springtime and summertime. It came back in September more virulent, more violent, more lethal than it was in the first round. The federal government took a very hands-off attitude about the pandemic. They also were not honest, and many local officials were not honest. Time and time again, you saw local officials say, it's just the flu. And it wasn't just the flu. It was something much, much worse. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen.
This past week in the U.S., we've lost an average of 2,200 lives per day to COVID-19. Many fear we could return to the peak numbers of the pandemic when 3,300 lives were lost each day. Dr. Howard Markell is a physician and medical historian at the University of Michigan. Thank you for talking with me. Take us back to the last pandemic, the Spanish flu. What saved lives then? What, what worked? Well, what we found saved lives in a, a pre-vaccine and pre-antibiotic era was that those cities that uh, layered their responses, you know, the quarantines and public gathering bans, did them early and did them for a long time, had far fewer cases and deaths than those cities that did not. And we found that, again, that social distancing measures probably saved millions and millions of lives from COVID last year. But of course, it's a, it's a drastic measure, as we all know now. It, the world has never stopped for as long as it stopped during this past pandemic. But now what's great about living in the 21st century is that scientists have developed several safe and effective vaccines that will completely prevent this infection. So that's what I want to articulate is that there's a safe way out of this. Dr. Howard Markell at the University of Michigan, thank you for talking with me, appreciate it. My pleasure. Next on Matter of Fact, Bronx-born comedian Gina Brion gets serious about the American dream. We have a long way to go before Latinos in this country feel like they can actually achieve the American dream. And still ahead, their rallying cry was, yes, we can. How the leaders of the farm worker movement got the nation's attention. Each September, I look forward to celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. It's a 30-day window from September 15th to October 15th, and it's a chance to recognize generations of Hispanic Americans and Latinos who've influenced our history and enriched our culture. It's also a chance to introduce new voices in our conversation about diversity and inclusion and reimagine the American dream. One of those outstanding new voices is a young woman who's been a stand-up comic since the age of 17. Por favor, den la bienvenida a Gina Brion. Hi, I'm Gina Brion. My background is pretty dope. I am Puerto Rican from the South Bronx. All of my friends growing up were pretty much black and Latino until I went to high school, then I discovered white people. At a certain point in my life, I made a lot of Mexican friends. So a lot of my Spanish sounds very Mexican, which is confusing to my Puerto Rican relatives. Besides being a Puerto Rican who sounds incredibly Mexican when she speaks Spanish, I am Latina, but I'm also American. I was born and raised here. So I'm not American enough for the Americans, not Latino enough for the Latinos. The American dream to me was always this idea of having enough money to live comfortably not having to work just to live, but having expendable income and, and being able to have nice things and you know have the, the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids and the perfect dog and everything. And as I get older, it doesn't seem very realistic. The American dream to a lot of Latinos is like the worm on the hook that gets you here to America. Like they dangle it in front of you and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I want to be in America. Like you want all that like things and then you get here and it's like, oh, they just played me in America. Like, oh, I just got played here. They dangled this in front of me, but it's not really for me. I don't think the floor is leveled for Hispanics and Latin Americans at all in terms of the American dream. I just don't think it is. I think 
we come in on this promise that, oh, you can have this American dream, you really can, you can have everything you want, and then as soon as we step up, they're like, oh, not you. Next, you can have this American dream. Oh, no, 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 not you. Where are you from? Okay, no, you have an accent. Oh, no, you're Afro-Latina? No, I'm sorry, not you. And it's always like we are just on the line. It's like being at the DMV. You're just on the line waiting until your turn comes up, and it just never comes up. In my opinion, what it says about America is we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go to equality. We have a long way to go before everything seems fair. We have a long way to go before Latinos in this country feel like they can actually achieve the American dream. See more stories about the Latino experience in America, including Pulitzer Prize winner Jose Antonio Vargas and journalist and podcast host Maria Inajosa. Check out the Matter of Fact listening tour to be an American at matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, immigration courts are flooded as thousands of migrant families file for legal asylum. One judge in Boston was assigned 129 cases in one day. What's being done to ensure every case gets heard? Now to a segment we like to call, we're paying attention even if you are too busy. What can be done about the thousands of migrant families crossing the border from Mexico seeking asylum? They're asking for legal protection in the U.S., a status given to those who flee persecution or war or violence in their home country. A new effort by the Biden administration is trying to get these asylum seekers in front of immigration judges faster. To do that, federal immigration courts have now dedicated dockets. They're known as rocket dockets. Track is a Syracuse University website that monitors immigration issues. Their numbers show that nearly 12,000 people were added to court dockets in August. That takes the total to more than 16,000 cases, all pursuing the legal avenue to asylum. One judge in Boston was assigned 129 cases in one day. Advocacy groups and critics say the handful of judges assigned won't have enough time to be thorough. They worry families will be deported if they aren't represented in court, or conversely, others will be admitted who don't meet the criteria to stay. Coming up on Matter of Fact, they were members of America's forgotten workforce toiling in the fields. We take a closer look at the leaders who inspired the United Farm Workers of America. a moment in history that changed the lives of some of the most marginalized people in this country. On September 30th, 1962, Cesar Chavez, along with Dolores Huerta, held the first convention for the National Farm Workers Association, now known as the United Farm Workers. Chavez and Huerta would later lead the Delano Grape Strike in 1965. They led 70 farm workers in a march to California's capital to draw national attention to unfair pay and unsafe housing. Over the years, the strike picked up steam and earned the support of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Senator Robert Kennedy. At one point, 17 million Americans were boycotting grapes, along with lettuce and gallo wine. This all eventually led to the Agricultural Relations Act in 1975, which allowed farm workers to bargain for better wages and working conditions. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about women who came of age before Roe versus Wade and the difficult choices they made, the reproductive rights case before the Supreme Court, a look at the lessons of the 1918 flu, 
and Bronx-born comedian Gina Brion's take on the American dream. Just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.